We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. I think people vastly, vastly underestimate how much cheap energy does for us. And it's kind of strange that we underestimate it because when we discovered fossil fuels, that was such a huge unlock, right? There's an early unlock in human history that's also related to energy that people also completely underestimate is when we figured out that we can have meat over fire and that we can cook meat, right? When you eat meat that's cooked, you get a lot more calories out of it. This was the first huge human energy unlock. Like a rare piece of meat or a raw piece of meat, your body needs to spend energy digesting. And so you only get the net calorie gain. But when it's cooked, you get a huge net calorie gain. And so our invention of fire is part of what made human civilization possible. So like we have this history of making vast civilizational leaps that are based on energy. And then we're like, get ourselves into this low energy trap and like idiots are walking around going, we have seem to have a lot of problems. I wonder like, we're working on this little problem, working on this little problem. No, like we need a huge energy unlock and that will make a lot of these other problems go away. Maybe not go away, but it'll make them solvable. Let's put it that way. Hello, and welcome to our first ever episode of Age of Miracles. I'm Packy McCormick, a venture investor and writer of the Not Boring Newsletter, where each week I dive deep on the companies and technologies driving humanity forward. Not Boring's mission is to make the world more optimistic. And I believe that a big part of that is making new technologies and the companies behind them more understandable. I love writing essays on complex topics. I've done it practically every week for nearly four years. Some topics, though, are too complex and nuanced for me to capture in a single newsletter. They require insights from experts, investors, and founders who spend every day focused on how to build new products and maximize their impact. That's what Age of Miracles is all about. Each season, we'll explore an industry that's going to play an important role in creating an abundant future for humanity. The title, Age of Miracles, is a little tongue-in-cheek. We can live in an Age of Miracles, but it's going to take an enormous amount of work. For our first season, we're starting at the root of progress and prosperity, energy. And we're gonna be focusing on nuclear fission and fusion energy. That clip you just heard was from Albert Wenger, a legendary investor at Union Square Ventures and the author of The World After Capital. Albert articulates something I've noticed more and more and more over the past couple of years, a realization that to unlock the next stage of human progress, we're gonna need a lot more energy. It's easy to underestimate the role of energy in our lives today, especially if you, like me, live in a country in which energy flows freely. For decades, when regular people like you and me talked about energy, it's been to complain about higher prices at the pump or to demand that we use less of it in order to stop climate change. The war in Ukraine has begun to change the narrative. And as the narrative has changed, the public's attitude towards energy has begun to change with it. Yes, we need to emit less carbon into the atmosphere. And we even need to pull gigatons of it out of the atmosphere. But that doesn't need to come at the expense of energy usage or human progress. Quite the opposite. We have the technology 
to consume much, much more energy while also fighting climate change. When technology goes right, we can have it all. I personally want a future of energy abundance, and I want that future to come as soon as possible. More energy raises the floor and the ceiling. It can help pull billions of people up to a Western standard of living and power all of the futuristic technologies entrepreneurs can dream up. The GPUs that power AI, electric cars, supersonic jets, robots, water desalination, 3D printing, even transportation among the stars. You name it, more energy helps. We're gonna bust some nuclear-specific myths today, but the first myth that we need to bust is that humans need to consume less energy. That belief, which has held sway over the past 50 years, has caused countless deaths and untold human suffering. It's held humanity back from reaching our potential. It should make you angry. More energy means more human flourishing. Nothing else translates quite so directly. So how do we make more energy without fucking the planet? Renewables like solar and wind paired with batteries are a big part of that solution. The growth and cost declines in solar and batteries in particular are a modern miracle. If they continue on their current trajectory, their supporters believe that they can totally replace the need for fossil fuels by 2050. That's very aggressive, but I love the optimism. But if we want to access 10 times more energy, 100 times more energy, I think we're going to need to produce a lot of it by splitting atoms apart and fusing them together. We're going to need to go nuclear. That's what we're going to dive into in this season of Age of Miracles. We're going to go very deep on both the incredible opportunities and dizzying challenges to harnessing atoms for energy. We're going to talk to world-class experts in science, policy, investing. We're going to talk to founders and the government, and you'll hear from them each episode. But, Packy, you might be saying, you're not a nuclear expert. And while I did start my career interning on an energy trading desk, you'd be right. So each season, I'm going to be joined by a co-host who actually knows what they're talking about. And I've got an incredible co-host this season, Julia DeWall. Julia wrote an essay, Nuclear Energy, Past, Present, and Future, that was my go-to guide as I began to explore nuclear energy over the past year. And she has experience building really hard things. She was an early employee at Opendoor, ran business operations for Starlink at SpaceX, and has joined the founding team of the microreactor company Antares. Welcome, Julia. Thanks, Packy. I'm super excited to be doing this with you. There is so much to learn about and unpack with nuclear energy. This is going to be a blast. I can't wait for our listeners to hear from all the experts that we have coming on the show, the entrepreneurs, the investors. We've talked to a whole bunch of people and packaged it right up for the season. Me too. I mean, I'm always happiest when I'm the dumbest person in a conversation. And I think we've achieved that in every single episode and every single interview. So I'm pumped for that. Before we dig into this episode in particular, we'll go into how we each got into nuclear, do a little myth busting and common objections. We wanted to give you a little preview of what to expect from this season of Age of Miracles. Uh, and now it costs about $10 billion for a gigawatt uh, power plant. It's just insane. Elon Musk has been called the idiot factor with nuclear construction. Like it's, it's as bad as like 99 to one in a lot of cases. By the way, with the Vogel plant, when they poured it just a little bit wrong, an eighth of an inch off and a regulator came up and put a little flag on that, they made them tear up a billion dollars of concrete. Do we have enough resources? Do we have the technology? Do we have the desire? Do we have the need for nuclear? Absolutely, we take all those boxes in the U.S. and we can get it done. We really 
want to. We are in a very special moment right now that won't last forever. We cannot wait. And so I hope that folks don't let the moment pass. There are two big themes in our first season about nuclear energy. One, what really went wrong with nuclear fission and what can be done to unstick the stagnation? Can nuclear ride the same kind of learning curves that solar has? And two, when will we get to commercial fusion energy? And if we do, will it obsolete the need for any of the other energy sources we discuss, including fission? Of course, these are age-old questions in technology. Will the new technology disrupt the old? How do we get from innovation to impact at scale? But the complexities and nuances and surprises in nuclear are unlike anything I've ever encountered. And I pride myself on being able to explain complex, nuanced topics in easy to understand ways. Julia has literally helped launch satellites to get us fast global internet. We're used to these kind of complex, hard problems, and this one is a, a brain bender. It, it really is. On this season of Age of Miracles, we are going to unabashedly nuke pill all of you because fundamentally, we believe that we don't get to energy superabundance and better futures without popular support for more clean energy, and we need nuclear in the mix. That's not to say that we're zealots here. There's a lot to like about different energy sources too, for different reasons. And nuclear is going to have to get a lot cheaper to compete in the market. But we do think that the historical fear of nuclear is misguided, that more energy powering more growth is a good thing, and that a nuclear powered future is possible. We'll have been successful if you leave this season believing that more nuclear power is a good thing, we need to figure out how to produce it economically, and that you're deeply aware of the roadblocks that need to be overcome to do so. As technologists and builders ourselves, we know that an idea or a vision or a scientific discovery is worth next to nothing without all the hard work on the ground by the founders, the scientists, the engineers, the investors, the activists, even the regulators and the people from government because the bigger the impact to humanity and clean, abundant energy is one of the biggest things we can do as a species, the bigger the collective effort for many, many, many people, and the more clear-eyed we have to be about challenges and creative solutions. So we're going to spend the season diving into all of this. On this episode, we're just at step one of our journey here to nuke pill you and to help us all move forward toward the future of energy superabundance. So let's talk nuclear fission. This summer, on August 11th, the Illinois chapter of the environmental group Sierra Club tweeted a celebratory tweet along with smiling picture of Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. It said, Breaking. Today, Governor Pritzker vetoed SB 76, a bill that would have lifted Illinois' moratorium on new nuclear plants. Thank you, Governor Pritzker. Five years ago, maybe even a year ago, the tweet would have been largely ignored maybe celebrated by environmentalists and the passively climate-supportive, booed by the hardcore niche of nuclear advocates, but mostly ignored. In the year of our Lord 2023, the Sierra Club got ratioed, 113 likes to 424 quote tweets and a bunch of replies. I'll read you a sampling. Paul E. Williams, the executive director of the Center for Public Enterprise, tweeted, good news for coal and natural gas burning thanks to Sierra Club Illinois. Value Drift and a non-account tweeted, Environmentalists must be stopped for the good of the environment. Armin Domaluski tweeted, You people are climate arsonists, an absolute disgrace. Even Jason Calacanis, J-Cal, the host of the All In podcast, got in on the action tweeting, Really, Governor Pritzker, what's your thinking here? Because we need to be energy independent in the U.S. 
and the planet is basically on fire. I looked through the hundreds and hundreds of replies and quote tweets so that you don't have to, but we will put a link in the show notes in case you want to, because it's kind of fun. Mark Nelson, a nuclear advocate, summed it all up. He said, these frauds are hopefully not going to be with us much longer. Now, Twitter is not a perfect microcosm of reality, but the response to Sierra Club's tweet reflects a huge shift in the United States, growing support for nuclear energy. According to the latest Pew poll in April 2023, 57% of American adults say that they favor more nuclear power plants to generate electricity in the country, up from 43% in 2020. And nuclear power has bipartisan support. 67% of Republicans now want more of it, as do 50% of Democrats. The dunks on Governor Pritzker were blind to party lines. The war in Ukraine certainly played a role in nuclear's growing popularity. It made energy security a real and present issue and forced people to take a look at the facts. When they did, they saw that nuclear fission is the cleanest, safest form of energy we have. All of a sudden, people want to consume more energy. Or rather, they want to do a lot of the new things that mean that they'll need to consume a lot more energy, not less. In the course of a couple of years, conservation is out and energy superabundance is in. That's good. Energy is a positive-sum game. The more we have, the better people do. Give us more solar, wind, geothermal, and more nuclear. Nuclear energy has gone from controversial to just about consensus in the last couple of years, at least within tech circles. As Eid Bengard recently tweeted, pro-nuclear is an atrociously obvious stance. I don't want to have the quote, is nuclear bad convo. I want to have the how and where will cost incentives point to nuclear over other sources convo. And that's exactly the conversation we're going to have in the first half of this season as we dive into nuclear fission. We're going to try to untangle the web of issues that make nuclear so expensive to build in the U.S. today and spend a lot of time talking to the people on the front lines who are trying to build nuclear more cheaply. Should we build more of the same large-scale design over and over again so we can do it more quickly and cheaply and predictably? Or should we experiment with new reactor designs to take advantage of advances in our knowledge and technology? Do we need to rally to change regulations? Or is the regulatory burden issue just overblown? Should the government play a more active role in the development of nuclear capacity? Or should we let the free market do its work? The answer is often, it depends, or both. We'll present the best thinking we can find. But as with any of the best educational content, This show will work best when you engage with it, dig deeper, and come to your own conclusions. To help, we'll put together a resource guide that we'll update with each episode, which you can find at ageofmiracles.co. Julia, you're kind of the archetype here. Someone who's been interested in and involved in technology broadly, who's gotten up to speed on nuclear really quickly. The goal of today's episode, I think, is to condense everything that you've learned in the past couple of years diving into nuclear into just one episode. And not everything, but we'll address some of the most common myths and the 101 stuff that we just need to do to clear the decks. And then we'll set the stage for the 201 stuff, the stuff that I don't think anybody has the complete answer on, but that we'll spend the whole season talking to experts about. To start, though, how'd you get nuke-pilled? Yeah, it goes back about a year and a half. I was working at SpaceX at the time, and we were trying to get Starlink into Ukraine after the war broke out in February. And it really just got me thinking about energy in that region. The fact that Russia provides so much natural gas to so much of Europe and just what was going to unfold there and how it probably wasn't going to look all that pretty. Simultaneously, I just happened to be reading Michael Schellenberger's book, Apocalypse Never. That's where he's basically debunking the whole doomer climate movement. 
the fact that we actually do have all these great tools that we can use to fight climate change, nuclear energy being one of them, and we just need to go out there and figure out how to do those things. So it just got me thinking a lot more about nuclear energy as a power source. And I realized I basically knew nothing about it and no one was talking about it either. So I had no idea, for example, that nuclear energy accounts for almost 20% of the electric grid. I thought at the time it was maybe 2%. I had no idea either. Cause I mean, like one of the narratives about nuclear is that we just like don't build it anymore. So I almost kind of assume that we don't even use it anymore before I started digging in. So when I saw that 20% number, that shocked me. And since then, I've actually gone out and pulled friends and, and just about everyone thinks it's less than 5% too. So it's it's clearly just this underappreciated, under-celebrated source of energy. Uh, it's actually almost 50% of our carbon neutral, carbon free energy as well. It just got me thinking, you know, we have this great technology, we're under leveraging it. The narrative needs to change here. We need to celebrate this great technology that we have that's clean. And if we're serious about decarbonizing and if we're serious about energy security and diversity of energy sources, we need to figure out how to do more with nuclear. Thanks for listening so far. Hang on, we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, as we mentioned, I think Ukraine probably was a wake-up call for a lot of people, me included. When electricity prices in Germany were spiking, I remember seeing those charts that were all over Twitter of just like electricity prices looking like Dogecoin, uh, and they're shutting down nuclear and turning on more coal. Alarm bells started ringing. I, when I did that energy trading internship, I worked for a group of ex-Enron power traders. They were assholes. But as a trading intern, you couldn't really do much. You weren't allowed to actually trade. So one of the things I did was check the weather in key areas each day and run models on how long we expected different markets to have to move from cheaper baseload power to more expensive peaker power. Electricity prices spike when you move to the peakers, which are typically natural gas turbines to meet periods of high demand. So if you had a good sense of when that was going to happen, you could trade it. All that came flooding back, and it made me realize how insane it was that Germany was intentionally shutting down cheap, clean, baseload power. So I started reading a lot more about nuclear and realizing that I hadn't thought nearly enough about energy more broadly and nuclear more specifically. And as I started digging in, I realized there are three myths about nuclear that I'd kind of just accepted before researching them. So I thought it would be useful to address those up front. To be clear, nuclear is a crazy complex topic, but the common objections are not real reasons that nuclear should be avoided. You shouldn't be scared of it. We want to get those out of the way now so we can go deep on the real challenges that we think will really matter. So I'll bring up a common objection to nuclear and you tell me what people get wrong. Sound good? Let's do it. All right, myth number one, nuclear is unsafe. And as a result, a lot of people have died from nuclear disasters. This is a popular one, and uh, let's just go through the three nuclear disasters people think of. First is Three Mile Island, that's 1979 in Pennsylvania. There was a core meltdown there, 
and the amount of radiation that leaked out of the plant was tiny, about the amount of a chest x-ray that you'd get at the doctor. Negligible, but the government there and the facilities overreacted and they actually evacuated the area. And this media and government overreaction caused just a, a complete misunderstanding of what was actually going on, how dangerous the situation actually was. It was almost a miseducation of the public on like what actually happened and what the risks actually were. And there was this hangover related to this in 1979 that um, people still reference to this day. And it didn't help that 12 days before Jane Fonda's movie, The China Syndrome, which was about a nuclear plant melting down, had just come out and you know terrified the people on the topic right beforehand. The second incident is Fukushima in 2011. And this one's completely overblown. It's debated whether zero or one people actually died from any sort of radiation at Fukushima. The bigger thing that I think people miss here is the fact that 15,000 people died from the tsunami there. That is a ton of people. There was so much damage because of the, the huge tsunami that hit. The actual radiation piece of it is, is tiny relative to the rest of the tsunami. Yeah, when I think of Fukushima, I had always bucketed those 15,000 people who died as having died from radiation or from some sort of explosion at the plant. How did they actually die? I mean, it's really related to all the, the flooding that happened from the actual tsunami hitting shore, right? And this happened all along the coast, right? The, the, the power plant is obviously at just a tiny area of that. Um, but what happened at the plant is the generators, which were the backup power support for the system, went down. So there was a core meltdown. The cooling systems couldn't stay online and radiation leaked from some of these reactors. But there was a containment dome. You had first responders ready to react to the situation, suited up, equipped to handle it. And again, this is one of these things where the media and the kind of reputation of what happened here is far, far, far larger and worse than what actually happened. And it was able to be contained and taken care of. Then there's Chernobyl. And I actually would call this one a true disaster. Dozens and dozens of people died there. But I think what's misunderstood here is that the scenario in Chernobyl is so unlikely to incur in the US. You had this shoddy Soviet technology out of date. You didn't have any of the basics of safety there. There was no containment dome, which is basically safety 101. And you had a group of people who were operating the plant that decided to run a safety-related experiment that they shouldn't have been unauthorized. That messed up, caused a meltdown to occur. And then the worst thing that happened is that people tried to cover this up. And so you had all of these things compounding together into what did actually turn out to be a true disaster. A lot of radiation leaked out. And again, this is not something that I think we would ever see in the U.S., given all the regulatory and safety environment that we live in here. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask about that one first, because safety is actually the thing that got me. Like, I always thought that there was this trade-off between... We have this really great clean source of energy, but it's actually pretty dangerous. And there's these meltdowns that happen occasionally and they kill thousands of people. And the thing that got me to take nuclear more seriously was this great Our World and Data chart where they show the most dangerous sources of electricity, starting with brown coal at the top, responsible for 33 deaths per terawatt hour produced. And then you go all the way down the chart, past oil, gas, all these other sources. And right down at the bottom, right between wind and solar, is nuclear energy at 0.03 deaths per terawatt hour produced versus 33 for brown coal. So three orders of magnitude less than brown coal. Solar, wind, and nuclear are in a league of their own when it comes to safety. And yet in Germany, they're taking nuclear off the grid and putting coal back on the grid. It's just absolutely nonsensical. So I'm glad that we addressed the safety one first. Okay, myth number two we have no safe way to dispose of nuclear waste. 
This is a big one, and you'll hear about this one a lot. I like to just flip this one entirely on its head. What if someone said to you, Packy, the nuclear industry is the only industry that manages their toxic waste? Wouldn't you be impressed? Yeah. Uh, but that's not the way anyone sees it. Unfortunately, there are all these other industries that do pollute toxic waste. There are no stringent regulations the way there are in the nuclear industry. So really, no one is taking care of their waste the way that the nuclear industry does. Uh, and the first thing I'll say about the nuclear waste itself is that it is tiny, takes up a really, really small amount of space. All of the nuclear waste that's been produced in the U.S. can fit inside a football field stacked 10 meters high, and we contain all of it. It is sitting there at nuclear power plants within concrete canisters, and it has never caused any injuries or death to anyone. And so we're doing just fine, and that's just the status quo, the way we do things today. There's also an even better solution, which would be to bury our waste deep underground, which is where uranium actually comes from. And we've had plans to do this at a place in Nevada called Yucca Mountain. Um, but unfortunately, this is one of these massive bureaucratic boondoggles, and it is sitting there, not complete, because of too much infighting about how to get this done, completely caught up in red tape. We know that in other places, Finland, for example, has just finished building one of these geologic deposits, and it's a great alternative. Keep your waste underground, and it's kind of going back to where it even came from. And then the last thing I'll say about nuclear waste is that people talk about, oh, it's going to exist, you know, being dangerous for millennia. Um, and it's true that the alpha radiation that will be around for millennia, but that's not harmful to people. The gamma radiation is what people are worried about in nuclear spent fuel. And that's actually only going to be around for about 500, 600 years and we have some great solutions to do that today with the cast setup we have or with those geologic deposits. The thing that sticks in my mind when we talk about ways, you just mentioned the cast, is that image of Maddie Hilly, who's a nuclear advocate, pregnant and hugging one of these giant cement things filled with spent fuel, saying to the world, like, look, I'm putting myself and my baby at quote unquote risk here by doing this. And I think the images are so powerful on both sides of the nuclear debate. So I like to see her fight back a little bit with, with images of her own. Totally. I think it was really cool she did that because nobody really knows what nuclear canisters look like, right, and how we store waste. We've had The Simpsons. The, that's showing green goo spewing out of containers. But in reality, it's actually all very neatly contained, very safe on the premises of the reactor site. I love The Simpsons, but I do wonder how much The Simpsons have contributed to anti-nuclear sentiment. Because now when I thought of nuclear, I pictured two things. One, that there are people like Homer Simpson operating nuclear plants. And then two, that one Homer operating a plant could cause a huge meltdown, neither of which is true. So I don't know. I love The Simpsons, but I'm a little conflicted on that one. I don't think it was worth it. I don't know. All right. Myth number three, nuclear power facilitates nuclear proliferation. Proliferation is something people worry about, and they should. There's mostly just been this association, though, of nuclear energy with nuclear weapons, but they actually couldn't be more different. It is virtually impossible to create nuclear weapons from nuclear fuel. The processes that you go about to create each of them are just so different. Nuclear fuel has actually gone through many, many steps from its original raw uranium format to be able to be in a fuel format. To build a bomb requires a completely different set of processes and equipment, and you need to have a lot of money and know-how to do this. And then step two is the fact that as a nation and then internationally, we have set up multiple organizations, the IAEA, for example, that keep their eyes on everything related to uranium mining, enrichment, all the processes that you would go about to even get close to creating nuclear weapons. We've done that. That's international peacekeeping on this front. It's just one of those overblown topics, certainly something to take seriously, but I think we've shown that this topic is solved and we know how to handle it and we can handle it. 
This is actually a fun fact here that I love to share with people because I was blown away when I heard about it. So let's let's take the opposite, flip this on its head once again, where you take nuclear weapons and the uranium and the plutonium in those, and you actually turn them into nuclear fuel. And there was a program called Megatons to Megawatts that started in 1995, where we took Russian nuclear weapons, disassembled them, took out the enriched uranium and created fuel. And that powered almost 10% of our grid for almost 20 years in the U.S. So really fun. It's like almost the counterpoint here. There's probably some opportunity to take these weapons and turn them into fuel instead of people constantly worrying about the other way around. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. Atoms for peace, USA. I love it. So to recap, myth number one, nuclear is unsafe. And as a result, a lot of people have died from nuclear disasters. That one's false. Either zero or one people died from radiation at Three Mile Island and Fukushima combined. And while Chernobyl was a real disaster, it was the result of bad Soviet technology and procedures that we would never use today. Myth number two, we have no safe way to dispose of nuclear waste. This one also busted. The amount of nuclear waste is tiny. We know how to handle it. You can hug the concrete around nuclear waste and be totally fine. And there are now even companies using waste as fuel. And myth number three, nuclear power facilitates nuclear proliferation. One, this is less than a concern than people think because of the physics. But then two, we've set up a watchdog and regulatory framework around the world that ensures that it's just not an issue. Right. And I don't want to hand wave these issues away. A big reason that these three areas are now myths is because people put in the work to address them. And we'll put links in our resource guides so y'all can learn more. As we'll talk about in the next episode, one of the mistakes that early nuclear advocates made was overpromising. And we want to give the issues, the nuance, and the depth that they require. But I really think at this point, these three issues don't present cause for concern and certainly aren't enough of a basis for serious people to oppose nuclear. We wanted to speed run these 101 issues so that we can spend more time on the real challenges and opportunities for nuclear. Okay, so what are those real challenges and opportunities? We've gone through the easy myths, now let's dig into the realities. We'll talk about the potential of fusion in a few minutes, but let's go a little deeper on the biggest issues for the miracle technology we have at hand today, fission. This is a wildly complex topic, which is why we're devoting four episodes to fission alone. But based on our discussions with experts across the spectrum, there are three main themes to the challenges with building more nuclear fission. First, and probably thorniest, is the cost and economics of nuclear plants. Nuclear is undeniably more expensive to build initially than any other energy source today. Can we bring those costs down? Where are those costs coming from? Are there efficiencies to be found in building a bunch of large reactors? And what about new solutions like small modular reactors? We talked to a lot of people trying to bring costs down, and a few things came up consistently that we'll dig into. One, large reactors, the gigawatt reactors that can power about a million homes each, need to be built more consistently, but there are all sorts of challenges that utilities, who are the buyers, face when deciding whether or not to build out a nuclear plant, from construction complexity to financing costs that make it, frankly, an unappealing prospect. Nuclear has been called a utility killer. Two, what needs to happen on the financing side for new nuclear to be built? For large reactors, should the government insure against cost overruns or provide more incentives for nuclear buildouts that recognize its role as reliable baseload power? Should utilities team up and share the costs, risks, and upside? For startups, is venture the best source of capital for such capital-intensive projects? And then number three, small modular reactors, or SMRs, and advanced reactors show a ton of potential. 
but they face regulatory challenges, like the fact that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is more comfortable with designs that it's already approved, and uncertainty. For example, should SMRs have the same requirements around security, including armed personnel on site, as large ones? Can smaller reactors make a dent in our very large energy needs and time? And can advanced reactors get the necessary supply chains up and running? These are some of the questions around economics, and, and we'll dig into more. One big topic that we'll dig into is should we build more of the same large reactor design over and over again until we can do it quickly, cheaply, and predictably? Or should we experiment with new reactor designs that take advantage of advances in our knowledge and technology? The second big challenge is on regulation more broadly. We thought this would be the overwhelming concern, but actually it's only one piece of the puzzle. These are the questions we'll tackle with our guests across both government and the private markets. Do we need to rally to change regulations or is the regulatory burden overblown? Should the government play a more active role in the development of nuclear capacity? Or should we let free market capitalism work its magic? And third, is it up to entrepreneurs to push hard and prove what nuclear can do in order to gin up the support needed to change regulation? Or should we have Congress and other people saying, this regulation is not working for us today? And finally, the last big challenge we wrestled with in the first half of the season is that issue of popular support. Is it necessary? What would be the knock-on effects of increased popular support for more nuclear? We have it now a little bit. It's kind of diffuse. We talked about it earlier. The numbers are good, but there's not this burning passion uh, and people actually getting up off the couch and going to fight for more nuclear that it might take to build more nuclear. We go back and forth throughout the season on whether or not that popular support is necessary. In the next episode, we trace the history of nuclear in the 20th century, and popular support, or lack thereof, plays a critical role. But where does that leave us today? It's funny. I love this topic. I know it's an area that people disagree on, right? If you look back, popular support, or I should say uh, lack of support, is one of the driving reasons for nuclear to stagnate. But now that we see popular support surging again, Will that have the impact we want it to have? Will, will that actually mean that a utility is going to go sign up for building a nuclear power plant? I find that a little hard to believe. But that said, there could be other areas that we'll get into in, in further episodes about where popular support might actually be a bit of the, the tailwind that's needed to get some of these nuclear projects over the line. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably hard to untangle the impact that Tesla had on the EV market and on powering things with electricity. And so that popular support alone doesn't do anything, but then that translates into subsidies and like all these things that kind of snowball and move in favor of a new technology that nuclear just hasn't had. It has these regulations that overblown or not are kind of working against at least building it fast. And I think there were, you know, some subsidies and incentives for nuclear kind of in the, in the IRA. And so the government's kind of coming around there, but not nearly enough to kind of get developers and, and utilities over the edge to actually build more nuclear. So one of the questions that I'm excited to dig into is just like, how much popular support do you need and like, where do you apply it? Is it better as this diffuse thing that we all tweet about and like kind of want to see happen in the world? Or do we need to like form groups and form packs or whatever we need to do and like direct that support at a few key areas? And hopefully this podcast helps at least build nuclear support and, and understand maybe where those pressure points 
could be. Right. And I think alongside the explicit support for nuclear fission, it's clear that also there just needs to be a change in the conversation about energy more broadly, right? We need to go from energy conservation and degrowth to a mindset of energy abundance and that the more energy we have, the better for the prosperity of humanity. And that's ultimately what we all want. We haven't come across anyone who supports this sort of abundant growth and opposes nuclear. Although we will talk to some people who think that solar in particular will play a much bigger role than people expect. There's not going to be one easy answer. I think one of the questions that I want to ask everybody that we talk to is, what do you think the mix of energy sources will be in the United States by the year 2050? And really get a sense for how people think about it. I don't think it's all nuclear. I don't think it's all solar. I certainly hope it's not all oil, gas, and coal. It's probably a mix of all those things. Or maybe it's all just fusion. Neither of us, and maybe nobody, is an expert in how to deploy commercial fusion because it doesn't exist yet. But I think it's going to be a really fun one for us to dive into because people seem to be really, really excited about fusion energy. I know I'm excited about it. It's almost like this utopian thing now because it hasn't actually met the reality of all the stuff that we've been talking about, the challenge around economics and regulation and all that. Julia, as someone who's been interested in and passionate about pulling energy from atoms, what's your view on fusion energy? I'm super excited that we're going to take on fusion alongside fission in this season because they're just at such different places in their history, in their arc. We're looking at an industry with fusion that's in its very early innings. It's R&D right now. It's looking at what approaches are even viable, could even work. What's the best way to eventually get something that's commercially viable? It's a really exciting stage. I, it couldn't be more juxtaposed from fission in a lot of ways because fission, it's matured from a technology perspective, but it got bogged down in all these other sorts of issues, right? From cultural, economic, regulatory. And so it's just a different set of issues in terms of what's going to allow each of these technologies to be commercially viable, if not flourishing going forward. So I think it's going to be really interesting. It's a really interesting contrast here in terms of two different industries that are basically two sides of the same coin, right? One is splitting atoms, one is merging atoms together to create energy. So I think it's going to be really exciting. Yeah, I mean, they're both super clean. They're both super safe. But to your point, they were born kind of at the same time. And then the histories look very different from there because we pretty quickly started commercializing fission in the country. And for the past 70, 80 years, we've been trying to figure out how to make a fusion reaction without using nuclear fission or a bomb to kind of start the fusion reaction in a way that produces more energy than you have to put in. The National Ignition Facility at the Lawrence Livermore Lab last year generated a ton of excitement by shooting lasers to spark a fusion reaction that achieved Q greater than one, which means that we got more energy out of the fusion reaction than we put in. It was like a battery's worth of energy, but it was a historic moment that is still really a long way from commercializing. So I'm excited to dig in with the people who are taking all sorts of different approaches. I think there's as many different approaches to creating commercial fusion as there are startups in the space, somewhere in the 30, 40 startup range. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you wrote a great piece about, about the marathon going on here, right, in the fusion industry. Can you give us just a little overview of what you learned when writing that piece and kind of what's the state of the union right now with fusion? All right. So with the caveat on the whole season, but this in particular, I am not an expert and that's why we're talking to the experts, but fusion is in this really exciting spot.
So the joke about fusion, like the joke about autonomous vehicles before it, is that fusion is always just 30 years away. Every year, fusion is 30 years away. I think we're in a spot where that's actually not true anymore. The thing that kind of sparked me to write the piece was that Helion Energy, a fusion company backed by Sam Altman, the OpenAI guy, announced that they'd signed an agreement with Microsoft to, by 2028, provide Microsoft with fusion power to run some of its servers, which is wild because most of the best estimates are like, if you're super optimistic, the early 2030s, maybe we'll have commercial fusion. They went out and said 2028. I have no idea if Helion's gonna be able to deliver. I think there's definitely some Silicon Valley chutzpah on that and saying, we're gonna do this thing by this totally improbable time in the hopes that we can actually go out and, and do this thing, it's a little Elani. But as I looked more into it, I think we're in this really, really interesting spot in the history of fusion. So the idea for fusion power started right around the same time as nuclear fission, right? Like they were both born out of the Manhattan Project at Los Alamos. This Hungarian physicist, Edward Teller, took the atomic bomb and said, cool, what if we use the impact of a fission explosion and use that to ignite a fusion explosion and develop a hydrogen bomb? And it worked. Luckily, we've only done it as a test bomb, the Ivy Mike test bomb, and it blew a crater into the middle of the island in the Bikini Atoll where they tested it. So we're gonna dive into the history of fusion energy later in the season, episode seven. What's interesting for now is that it does kind of mirror the history of Vision, started at the same place. And then early on, just like in Vision, there's all sorts of experiments on different designs and reactor types and fusion. There were concepts called stellarators and Z-pinch and magnetic mirrors. And you can look at them like they're all these twisty, complicated, wonderful, like brain children of these beautiful physicist minds. Then actually, of all people, the USSR came up with this design called the tokamak. And the tokamak essentially just looks like this big donut. So compared to all these other twisty, crazy designs, it's this relatively simple thing. They're able to use it to achieve higher temperatures, greater pressure, two of the, the biggest inputs into kicking off a fusion reaction. And because it's a simpler design, easier to scale. So after all this experimentation, the world really kind of converged for a while on the tokamak design. This international race actually became this cooperative thing. Now there's this project called ITER, or the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor, that all sorts of countries, countries that are competing with each other. We have India, China, US, Russia. I think there's 30-something countries all involved kind of putting their best people towards this huge reactor in the middle of France that hopefully by 2035, 2040, the date keeps getting pushed back because imagine building something with this many countries as part of a committee at some point might produce a reaction. But recently, in the past couple of years, maybe because of SpaceX's example, maybe because of advances in software and material science and the quality of magnets, Maybe just because there was more funding available during the ZERP era and through this bullish decade that we had in the 2010s, there's been this explosion of startups that are kind of reanimating all these designs that were really cool and the physics worked on paper, but we didn't have the software or the materials or whatever to actually make them work in practice. A bunch of people are trying those now. Fusion energy startups taking all sorts of different approaches. And that's kind of where we are now. I don't know if Helion's going to succeed. Commonwealth Fusion Systems is another one of the leaders. I hope we get a chance to talk to somebody from the team over there because what they're doing is fascinating. But my kind of dumb optimistic take is that somebody, one of these companies that are saying that they're going to get something done in 2030, are actually going to start producing commercial fusion in the early 2030s. 
Got it. So you mentioned Tokamax. What are the other approaches out there that we're seeing in this fusion race here? How are things going for these different approaches? Yeah, so there are a bunch of different approaches that people are taking now. And we're going to have to talk to the scientists and the founders, really get to the nuts and bolts of what's going on. But broadly, there are two categories, inertial confinement and magnetic confinement. The National Ignition Facility used inertial confinement. That's essentially just having a high-powered laser shooting a ton of energy at a fuel pellet to spark the fusion reaction. Then there's magnetic confinement, which is the approach that ITER and companies like Commonwealth Fusion Systems are, are taking. In this approach, magnetic fields are used to contain the hot plasma and keep it stable for long enough for fusion to occur. Tokamaks are the most common approach here, but there are others like stellarators and Z-pinch and magnetic mirrors and levitated dipoles and all the things that they were trying to do back in the 1950s and 1960s that whether it's because we have better magnets now, whether it's because we have better modeling and simulation software, a lot of those things that never worked or worked on paper but were too complex, people are now trying again. So there's magnetic versus initial confinement, and within each there are a bunch of different designs. Helion is actually trying a hybrid, magneto-inertial. And then there are a number of different fuel types like deuterium-tritium and helium-3 and more. And so I think of the 30 or so companies that we're tracking in fusion, all of them are different combinations and permutations of these different inputs. And just like nuclear fission, I think what we're also seeing is that they're trying to apply to a wide range of applications. So there's companies like Avalanche Energy they want to have a small reactor that you could bring essentially on a camping trip with you all the way up to Commonwealth Fusion and TAE and Helion that are trying to go grid scale. It's just a bunch of people taking different approaches and we'll see what happens. Super interesting overview. I am so excited to hear more from the founders themselves and the investors who are thinking about this space. One other angle I'm curious about and excited to learn more on is what will the regulatory framework be like? How far are we in developing that? How are people thinking about standing up a regulatory framework for this new industry? The thing Fusion has on its side is the fact that it's clean, right? And I'm using that word kind of intentionally, but from a branding and reputation perspective, Fusion's clean. It hasn't had the same issues and the challenges that you have to deal with when you're actually operating in the real world like nuclear fission has. So during the environmental movement of the 60s and 70s, Fusion wasn't a thing to protest against because it wasn't a thing that existed. And so I think it skipped a lot of that. And the way people are viewing it now is as this kind of hope for this clean, safe, abundant energy future. It's viewed the way that I think nuclear fission would be if nuclear fission were developed today. And so I hope we can take that support and some of the work that, you know, frankly, people in the fission industry are bearing the brunt of to establish a clear framework that fusion hopefully should be able to plug into something kind of even cleaner and easier there than fissions had to do. But I think it's too early to tell. We need to actually produce this stuff first. Yeah, totally. Uh, I was going to go right there, actually, with the public sentiment piece, yet it does feel like it's a total clean slate for nuclear fusion right now. And it makes me wonder if they should drop the nuclear altogether, just go fusion solo. <laughs> yeah, I think branding is important. Josh Wolf, who we talked to in the season, wants to rebrand nuclear as elemental energy, just to kind of give it a clean slate there. I think names do matter. And I think people within the fusion industry are actually just going with, it's a fusion company or a fusion energy company. I do hope that they do that without throwing fission under the bus. I think when I was doing research for that piece, there was a lot of like, no, 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 fusion is like the actually safe one, the actually clean one. There's no waste, like all these things and kind of these myths that we busted earlier. I think fusion is maybe trying to separate itself a little bit from fission at the expense of fission. I just want all of our energy sources to get along. 
Absolutely. Well, we've covered a lot of great ground this first episode, and I'm super excited for the rest of the season. We hope you come out of this episode new-pilled enough to want to learn more, like we've become. We hope that you understand the basics, that we've put some myths out of your mind, and that you have a good idea of the type of questions that we're going to be wrestling with throughout the rest of the series. We can live in an age of miracles, but it's going to take a lot more than technological innovation. We have a lot of work to do. So in the next episode, we're going to start wrestling with these questions by unpacking the history of nuclear in the U.S., where we went wrong, and what lessons we can take away. I'm excited to do that one with you, Julia. I'll see you on the next episode. See you then. Thank you for listening and watching to this episode of Age of Miracles. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and share. And if you're feeling really generous, tell us what you think in the comments. Plus, we have a ton of resources and references in our resource hub if you want to go deeper. And we've linked them all in the show notes below. See you next week.